In a series of heroes of faith, I'm talking about different heroes of faith, and, and, and most of them come from the Old Testament, or all of them come from the Old Testament. And um, last week we talked about a, a, a woman who just, Hannah, great heroine, I guess, would be the proper way of saying, of, the, of faith. And um, it really, we called it heroic motherhood. It could have been heroic selflessness, because we really talked about that, motherhood and selflessness, sort of, uh, sort of synonyms in many, many ways. And so, and this one is Moses and a heroic sacrifice. And of, of all these people that, that really showed a great, I mean, just amazing sacrifice. It was, it was Moses, and I want to show you what he gave up and, and why he gave it up and, and, and sort of the, the, the principles that came into thinking for him to give this up, all right? So we're going to take you back to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to take you through the narrative, the historical narrative here as to what happens. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, and even if you don't, I'll give you a real quick overview. Joseph led the children of Israel, the Israelites, into Egypt. He did it. It was a blessing from God because he was such a great man. Ended up second in command of all of Egypt. And he was able to do that and, bring, and save all of the Jewish nation uh, because there was a famine in the land. And, uh, and he was able to do that. So he led all these people into Egypt, and they were treated with honor because they were relatives of Joseph. Well, Joseph dies, and we go through three or four more generations. The, the children of Israel are, have, have, have obviously populated the area more fully, but at the same time that that happens, they fall out of favor with the king of Egypt, who was Pharaoh. Okay, so that's where we pick up this, this bit of history. And, uh, and watch what happens. We're in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. In time, Joseph and each of his brothers died, ending that generation. But their descendants had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so quickly that they soon filled the new land. Then a new king, a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He told his people, these Israelites are becoming a threat to us because there are so many of them. We must find a way to put an end to this. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. There are two things going on here. One is they're, they're, they're getting to be a, a, a sizable group of people. And they're a very important part of the economy. So Pharaoh A doesn't want them to hook up with some, some guy in Assyria or, or, or Chaldea or somewhere else around the world, somewhere in Mesopotamia. He didn't want them getting with some other country that wants to overthrow Egypt because they could do it because there were so many of them, but also because they become so influential in terms of the economy. It's interesting. Whenever you have found slavery in any civilization, um, eventually it will come back as it should. Uh, it will come back to, to, to hurt those who are the slavers, so to speak. For instance, we were in, uh, when we were in Charleston um, last summer, I think, we were touring, as Charlene and I like to do sometimes, some of the historic homes down in historic Charleston, which is a, just a charming place if you haven't been there. And, um, and I noticed in some of these old mansions that these huge fences that go around them, some of these Civil War-type mansions that weren't destroyed. And some of these fences had like what looked like spears kind of coming out, out of the top. I mean, they would be 10 feet high, these gates and, these, and these, this, this wall of wrought iron with spears coming out the top. I said, what's the deal on that? And they said it's because the slave owners were afraid that the slaves would someday have a, a rebellion. And the slaves at that time in the 1860s outnumbered, in, in, in that area of South Carolina, outnumbered the slave holders anywhere from two to three to one. 
So you can see if they, if they ever got together and uh, decided to, to rebel, and there were little pockets of that, they were afraid of them. This is exactly what was going on here. And they should be afraid of the people that they are enslaving. But, but that's, what, uh, that's what Pharaoh's got going on. He says, these people are getting too many, and they're very influential. They're a very important part of our economy. We can't lose them. But we don't want to have a rebellion here either. So let's, he does the exact wrong thing. He pushes them down even further. Look what happens. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They put brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down under heavy burdens. That never works, but people seem to try it. Uh, they forced them to build the cities of uh, Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more quickly the Israelites multiplied. The Egyptians soon became alarmed and decided to make their slavery more bitter still. They were ruthless with the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks and mortar and to work long hours in the field. And it's just going to come back to bite them. It was just a brutal thing to do. So that's what's going on. But then Pharaoh wants to go a step further. Slavery's not bad enough. They're still becoming more influential. We've got to do something, Pharaoh thinks. Look what he does. Verse 15, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwife, Shipra and Puah. Now, Shipra, there are more than two Hebrew midwives, just for the record. We believe they were like the superintendents or the supervisors. Because there were anywhere, depending on who you, who you read, anywhere from a million to two million Jewish people at that particular time. So they're going to need more than two midwives. So we believe these were like the two head midwives, if you will. He gives them orders. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, kill all the boys as soon as they're born. Allow only the baby girls to live. But, thank God, because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king and allowed the boys to live too. And when the king called for the midwives, why have you done this? He demanded, why have you allowed the boys to live? They're not going to do that. They have that good, we would call it a Judeo-Christian ethic. At that time, it's the Judeo ethic that life is important. They're not going to do that. And so, it's interesting to me what they say when Pharaoh says, why are you letting these Hebrew boy babies live? Why are you doing that? Here's their answer. Verse 19, sir, they told him, the Hebrew women are very strong. They have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. They, they are not slow in giving birth like these wimpy Egyptian women, you know? By the way, if you were a woman who had a long labor, I'm sure this doesn't mean that there was something wrong with you, okay? Just for the record, I do want to say that. They obviously were stretching this to try to save their own lives. God, you know, it's one of those things, well, did God honor their lie or their stretching of the truth? It was the greater good, without question, because God certainly didn't want them to put the Hebrew boy babies to death. So, look in verse 20. So, God blessed the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all. Here you go. He goes, he goes further. This guy's a bad guy. Uh, he, in order to all his people, throw all the newborn Israelite boys into the Nile River, but you may spare the baby girls. Now, let me ask you a question. Think about this a minute. Is this the only king in history who tried to change history by killing all the males of a particular kind of people? No. Herod tried the same thing. Time of Christ. He said, kill all the baby boys. He was scared to death that a king was going to be born. And there was. 
and it was in Bethlehem, and it was, and that's why Moses, excuse me, that's why Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to avoid King Herod. Same thing here. It's amazing, the, you know, what people will think of to protect their power and so forth, but um, didn't happen. So we skip down to chapter uh, two, verse one. Moses, um, well, watch what happens. About this time, or during this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman, that's Jochebed, and her husband, Amram, um, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw what a beautiful baby he was and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide, this is pretty interesting, when she could no longer hide the baby, hide him, she got him a little basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the edge of the Nile. The baby's sister, this is Miriam, she's probably about seven years old, we believe, then stood at a distance waiting to see what would happen to him. So get this picture. Pharaoh is saying, throw the babies into the Nile, the baby boys into the Nile River. Jacobet has her baby, and then at three months, she says, I'm not going to be able to hide this baby boy much longer. He's getting loud and so forth. So she, she concocts this little, little boat, so to speak, that holds a baby, floats it down the, the river, the Nile, and the reeds, and then she has her seven-year-old daughter, Miriam, follow it, see what's going to happen. I mean, it was, you know, and, and there's a side of me that wonders, and, and maybe... Maybe it's just me, I don't know, but there's a side of me that wonders if she, if it wasn't a little bit of an ironic twist here, if she's not, and this is how I would think, if she's not saying, okay, you told me to put my baby boy in the Nile River, I'll put him in the Nile River, I'll put him in a little boat and see, see where he ends up, you know? Um, so whether she was thinking that or whether she was just the desperation of a mother, which we, we would all have as mothers and dads who love our kids, I don't know. But here's Miriam watching what happens. Now, verse 5, soon after this, one of Pharaoh's daughters came down to bathe in the river and his ser- her servant girls walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the little basket among the reeds, she told one of her servant girls to go get it for her. As the princess opened it, she found the baby boy. His helpless cries touched her heart. He must be, she knew what was going on, he must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Let me tell you a little bit about this lady, this daughter of Pharaoh. Her name is uh, Hatashepsut. I don't know what they called her for short. Hat, we'll call her Hat, okay? But I'm not going to say Hatashepsut every time. She was the daughter, um, we believe, of uh, Tutmos I and his quote-unquote official wife, Amos, Tutmos of the Tuts of the recent, you know, people who've been touring around here in museums and so forth, so to speak. Um, so the interesting thing about Hat, the daughter of the Pharaoh, is she would have one other baby herself. She ends up adopting Moses, but she has one other baby. That baby dies at some point in time. So she basically has, she, she has one child. I, I only point this out because you know that Moses had to be how do you say it? He's a spoiled kid. I mean, he was a spoiled kid. He's in Pharaoh's court. He's the only child at this point, you know, at, at some point in his life. And you know what's going on here. He's, he's just, you know, hey, whatever Moses wants, Moses gets. So anyway, that's just a little side note. Keep, what, keep what's going on here. So, so remember, Miriam, the seven-year-old 
sister, older sister of Moses, is following him down the river. She sees the prince's daughter, the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, pick up Moses. And, and so she walks over in her seven-year-old innocence. The ba- then the baby sister, verse 7, approached the princess. Shall I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked. You know, yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl rushed home and called the baby's mother. She went back and found Moses' mother, okay? Take this child home and nurse him for me, the princess told her. I will pay you for your help. So the baby's mother took her baby home. That's Jacobed, Moses' mother, takes her baby home and nursed him. Later, when he was older, the child's mother brought him back to the princess who adopted him as her son. The princess named him Moses, for it means, for she said, I drew him out of the water. It means draw him out of the water. Interesting thing here that goes on. Miriam, the seven-year-old sister, is watching this happen. She goes over to her, hey, you know, you need some help. And like any good princess in Short Hills or Summit, she says, I need a nanny. I need a nanny. Yeah. So Miriam, <laughs> sorry, lady, just having fun with that. <laughs> just having some fun here. Didn't. So, so Miriam, Miriam, the seven-year-old sister, goes back and gets her mom, Moses' mom. And says, hey, come in. And she brings her to the princess. The princess says, I need you to take care of this baby. And by the way, can you nurse him? Oh, it just so happens I can nurse him too. Yeah, how about that? And keep him and just keep him for basically, we don't know how long, three, maybe four years. Maybe a little longer. Amazing. I mean, and here's a cool thing. I, 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 I kind of, I had to do it. I kind of ruined the story for you in this sense. Those first 10 verses, if you notice, there are no names that are mentioned for anybody. I gave you the names. I get that from correlation, Bible study, reading, other stuff, and, and anybody can do it. You just got to kind of work at it a little bit. But the interesting thing to me is Moses, we believe Moses wrote this passage. And he doesn't mention one person's name in those 10 verses. Many people believe, and I'm one, believe the reason he did that is because he wanted to emphasize one thing. This was a God thing. This wasn't about Jacobed. This wasn't about Hat. This wasn't about Miriam. This was, this, this was about God doing a pretty incredible, miraculous circumventing of the circumstances to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And so as a result... No, no names are even mentioned in those first 10 verses. We know that just through other reading and so forth. So anyway, I just think that's pretty cool. Moses lives in that privileged upbringing for 40 years. Did you get that? 40 years, 40 years as a, as, a, as a prince. Somewhere in that process, he learns that he, and I'm sure it wasn't that hard, probably at a very early age, that he really was Israeli by birth. And um, was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So 40 years later, we, come, we skip down to uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Many years later, 40, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his people, the Israelites. He saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves. By the way, Hebrew slaves have no rights. They're not really even considered people because they're slaves. So he sees this Hebrew or this uh, Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave. After looking around to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. It was a capital offense in Egypt, no matter what the circumstances. Some scholars say, well, maybe this was, uh, maybe Moses uh, confronted him and this was a self-defense kind of thing. We don't know the detail. We just know he killed him. And that was a capital offense. What happens from that point, Moses then has to leave the, the court, the royal court, so to speak, and he, he has to run, literally and, and figuratively, he, he, for 40 more years. He's what you call on the backside of the desert, 
because he doesn't want to get caught, doesn't want to have, you know, he'll be killed. Think of Moses' life really in three phases. Forty years in Pharaoh's court, 40 years running in, in the backside of the desert, and then 40 years leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and through Sinai into the promised land. He's an old guy. He lived a long time. And um, so, so there, there's, there's, you know, and it's about that time. I mean, the calendar's a little different, but I mean, that's it's roughly about what we're talking about. Heroic sacrifice. Look how he is spoken of later on in the New Testament by a New Testament writer writing about Moses. Look what he says, Hebrews chapter 11, New Testament. He says, it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months. They saw that God had given, him, given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid of what the king might do. It was by faith, watch this, that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be treated as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Can sin be fun? Sure can be. Bible says it right there. Can be. You know what, though? There's a steep price to pay. Fortunately and unfortunately, in my business, I've seen that steep price too many times. And you can't go back. It's a steep price. Can it be fun for a time? You bet it can. If you, don't, you know, if you don't think that's true, we need to have a chat. Anyway, instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, he thought it would, was better to suffer for the sake of the Messiah than to own the treasures of Egypt. And we know how, that, how great they were. We know that now. And just what we've seen, if you've ever been to see the King Tut stuff. For he was looking ahead to, to the great reward that God would give him. Moses, Moses sacrificed greatly. Now, here's my, here's my issue. I mean, this is basically faith that says, you know, even when it's easy or more convenient, I, I, I do what God has impassioned me to do. In this particular case, it was clear Moses had seen what God had wanted him to do, had heard what God had wanted him to do through a burning bush. Most of us aren't going to see burning bushes. And if we do, it's probably for the wrong reasons, right? Um, most of us aren't going to have that. So, here's what I have to, I have to stop and I have to think about this. Okay, so as in my job, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to tell you, each, one, each person that comes to one of the three services on Sunday morning, um, that, hey, you know what, you need to sacrifice, you need to have the, the strength to sacrifice with, with God, your job, and, and go, go work with the poor. Does that, that do like Moses did? I mean, you know what, there might be somebody here who might, have that passion, and might do that. Take an early retirement and go do it. That'd be great. That'd be great. But more than that, they're also, I, I think, more important, even, even as important as that might be, what we need to do is maybe look at some of these principles that caused Moses uh, and this, have this Moses heroic-like faith, some principles that might help me understand what sacrifice I may need to give or give up whether it be something that is subtle in the eyes of others, but not to me, or whether it's a big thing. I don't know that. I don't know that for you. But I want to just give you, so I'm just going to give you what I call three basic principles or tools for, for achieving Moses-like heroic faith. Just, these are really pretty much kind of redundant, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give them to you anyway, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, the first one is this. Sacrifice happens. This kind of sacrifice happens when you don't have an inflated view of self. Moses, Moses had, to, I mean, it took him 40 years probably. 
But Moses had that. Sacrifice happens when you don't have an inflated view of self. Bible deals with that in many different places. One of the clear ones is Philippians chapter 2. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though He was God, He did not demand and cling to His rights as God. Some would say that Moses was, had, had kind of a Messiah-like figure in that he had the rights to be in the royal court and he gave that up for something that God had placed on his heart to, be, to do some things that God really wanted him to do. So sacrifice happens. This kind of sacrifice happens when we don't have an inflated view of self. Sacrifice, this kind of sacrifice happens when one's worldview is expanded beyond me and mine. Now, you've got to think about this. Because sometimes our worldview is not just about me, but it's about, about mine. You know, my family, my little circle, whomever. And, th- and that's fine to have people who are important to you, but our worldview needs to expand beyond just me and mine. Let me show you a quote. Huxley said this. This is amazing to me. Aldous Huxley. He was the, uh, I'm not sure if he was the most recent one, but he was like the grandson of the of the great uh, Huxley, that, uh, Thomas Huxley, who had written all about the natural uh, species. and not, not, I'm not talking about Darwinianism, but it was similar. Very naturalist, very anti-faith, anti-God. Um, third one, or the second one, which is uh, the grandson, which is Aldous. He, he actually lived in this country. Interesting thing about Aldous Huxley is he died on the same day that C.S. Lewis died and that was the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, just a little trivia point. So people didn't even think about it. Huxley was a big guy on LSD. He, said that he, he promoted, everybody ought to do LSD. That was his deal. Everybody ought to do that. Now, you're talking, you know, dying, dying in the early 60s and, um, you know, living through the 50s and so forth. Pretty much anti-God. But you know what? He said this, and when, he, when I read this statement by him, I, I, was, I was amazed. There's only one effectively redemptive sacrifice the sacrifice of self-will to make room for the knowledge of God. It's a pretty amazing statement from this guy. He was right. I don't know, he didn't practice it, but he was right. That I know of, he didn't practice it. Sacrifice happens when one's worldview is expanded beyond me and mine, all right? Let's talk about worldview. Because that's really what we're talking about here. And that's, 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 what, that's what may need to be shaped or changed or moved, Okay? So watch this with me, because I'm going to have another quote for you. I don't do this very much, but I'm going to read to you from a book. A good buddy of mine turned me on to this book, The Question of God. And and it's uh, C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud debate, God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. What else is there? I mean, you know, um, it's a great book, and, and you know, that's... And you can read all, all the information on how to get it and everything is on, is on my blog. It's on, when you get home, it'll be on. Uh, just go to renaissancechurch.org and uh, go to my blog. And I got another quote from the book and so forth. And um, it's just an amazing book comparing Freud with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a student of Freud until he came to faith in Christ. And, and what, what, uh, what Nikolai does here, a Harvard professor, is he, he, he compares the two and their lives and what a life was like that was totally, anti, totally atheistic. Freud, and the life that was changed, C.S. Lewis, when he came to faith in Christ. Fascinating stuff. But I want to read one thing to you out here and, um, about this whole worldview thing. Because that may be what needs to be tweaked 
or changed or moved in your case. He's talking, this is Nikolai from the book. He says, whether we realize it or not, all of us possess a worldview. A few years after birth, we all gradually formulate our philosophy of life. Our worldview informs our personal, social, and political lives. It it influences how we perceive ourselves. This is interesting. It influences how we perceive ourselves, how we relate to others, how we adjust to adversity, and what we understand to be our purpose. Now watch this. Our worldview helps determine our values, our ethics, and our capacity for happiness. It helps us understand where we come from, our heritage, who we are, our identity, why we exist on this planet, our purpose, what drives us, our motivation, and where we are going, our destiny. So the point that I want you to see from this is sometimes our worldview needs to be changed, not just from beyond me and mine, but even further than that in some cases. So that brings me to what I call my money point. My money point. My money point, and this is, this is, this is the goods, baby, right here. Okay, this is it. I wrote this, but this is, this is incredible prose, okay? I have three stars beside it. I do. They, I asked them to do that in PowerPoint. They said they couldn't do that. I don't know what that means. But I have three stars behind it, all right, or on, on each side of it. Because this really says everything I've been, we've been talking about. It shows you exactly what we're talking about with Moses and this heroic, sacrificial faith that he had. And the point is very simple. There's this. Sacrifice happens. Sacrifice happens when one realizes that there is a God in heaven and I'm a steward of the life that he has given me. Think about that just for a moment. I'm a steward of the life that he has given me. Now, I've got to tell you, that has many faces. That has many faces. Some of you, I mean, some of you might say, you know what? Maybe I do take an early retirement and do this with my life. There might be one or two in the three services that we've done who might be like that today. But for some of you, it may look totally different. Maybe it will mean, you know what? I need to sacrifice some of my me time for this particular thing. Maybe it might mean, you know what I really need to do? I need to realign my finances. And the average Northeasterner slash Wall Streeter, according to Forbes magazine, gives 3 to 4% of their income to charitable things. Maybe I need to realign that and give a little more to things that really matter. Like Renaissance Church. No, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Um, seriously, to give things, maybe I need to give a little more. Maybe, maybe, I need, maybe I need to realign my whole agenda for life. I don't know how it looks for you. I can't answer that question for you. Love to, but I can't. But I can tell you this. That's something that you and maybe your mate need to have a serious chat about. Pray about. Talk about. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. I don't mean this capricious. Maybe having a little come to Jesus about this. Here we go. We need to really think about this. What am I doing? I have a life. I have so many years. I'm a steward of those years and all the resources and all that comes along with that. Maybe I need to move. Not necessarily geographically. Maybe that too. But maybe I need to move, figuratively speaking, in some, in some attitudes and some, some actions in my life. Maybe there needs to be some change that takes place. Let me tell you something. It's never too late to change a worldview. 
It's never too late. It should be done so carefully and prayerfully. I want you to think about that. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you to think about that. Then I'm going to ask the band. I'm going to get them to come on up while I'm praying um, and get them to kind of maybe challenge you with that same thought musically as well of, of, of moving where, where it is, however that might, whatever that might mean, where God would have me to be. Let me pray. God, I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on internally with people here, each person here, but you do. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, just make your presence known in some way to each person, that they would think, pray about the fact that however many years you've given them, they have that many here on this earth. And they're a steward of that. And they're responsible to you for however many those years are. I pray, God, that each one of us would think along those lines. And and if we need to be moved in one way or another, I pray, God, you would give us the strength and the ability to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.